Businesses all over the world right now are trying to reinvent how they connect with the world. Whether a business is delivering packages, treating patients, or running a global customer support center, their customers need them to invent new ways to stay connected. Twilio is the platform that Fortune 500 companies and startups alike trust to build seamless communication experiences with phone calls, text messages, video calls, and more. Really, the only limit becomes your developers' imaginations. It's time to build. Visit Twilio.com to learn more. Welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 214. I'm here with panelist John Sawyers. Thank you, Damien. And I'm here with our guest, Ryland Bowers. Ryland currently lives in Naiwo, Colorado. He's been consulting since 2012 on a variety of front-end and back-end client projects for startups and established companies. In his free time, Ryland manages open-source software and supports Boulder Food Rescue volunteers and helps organize Boulder Ruby. In his free free time, he rides bikes, reads, travels, hikes, camps, snowboards, and collects way too much vinyl. He also attempts to play guitar and keep an energetic pup tired out. Welcome to the show, Rylan. Ah, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Excellent. And uh, we'll kick it off the way we always do with the first question, which is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? Great question. I think it's really interesting to answer because I don't like to brag about myself, but I think Probably the best answer I could come up with is helping people. I uh, grew up volunteering with my parents, uh, especially for folks who are a little more underprivileged than I might have been. And that sort of feel good, give back to your community really sort of inspires a lot of what I do around that. I like mentoring. Uh, and I'm a firm believer that the rising tide lifts all boats. And so those are just really important to me. And I've, I've actually dropped what I've been doing to help people out with job searches or you know, any sort of struggles they may be having personally or professionally, fairly regularly. So it feels good to do that. And it's just nice to be an asset to your community in that way. And uh, the acquisition, like I said, was sort of growing up volunteering with my parents. I just sort of saw what that sort of enabled and, and what you're able to do by giving back to your community in all shapes and sizes. I like that you focus on the community as the recipient of uh, you know, what you're doing versus individuals. Cause I feel like it gives a sort of higher level look at what you're doing. Cause it, it does have a broader impact beyond just the individual that you may be mentoring, for example, like that, that has effects following on to other people. Correct. Yeah. You kind of hope to uh, cascade down a little bit and hopefully you don't even see all of the effects of what you're doing, but it sort of pays it forward in ways that you don't know. Which sounds like it's incredibly well connected to the thing you wanted to talk about today. The transition is actually pretty seamless. I didn't really intend that, but it did, as I was thinking about it, sort of have some nice parallels. So I was re reading recently The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. It's why good people are divided by politics and religion. And I think no matter where you are on the spectrum, if you sort of analyze the country that we all live in, uh, it's a little divided and sort of trying to figure out why that is and how we might be able to improve it. Very interesting book. He's a, a moral psychologist uh, based in New York. I believe he works at NYU now. Don't need to give his exact biography, but he's a very interesting person. A lot of videos online as well to sort of follow up if you find this topic interesting. I'll just sort of, I think, give a brief overview of what moral psychology is. I think maybe some of us could know what it but it might be, but it's, it's a field of study that uses a little bit of philosophy and psychology to sort of look at the moral development of humans uh, and how we make choices in our lives. That's applicable to pretty much everything. So I think it's a, an interesting sort of subgenre of psychology, which is also really fascinating to me in college. And so this book sort of really pulled me in as I was reading it because there's a lot of studies. Uh, and he tells, he kind of frames these stories that are sort of provocative in a way to suss out how people might make choices, morally speaking, and then rationalize those choices. Uh, and so that was just fascinating all on its own to parse through, like, how would I respond to those stories? Uh, and I can give some examples if you would like, maybe one or two. But um, generally, it's just it's asking for responses that trigger some sort of moral intuition that's coming up. I really love that that framing that our morals are intuitive. Uh, they're not something we rationalize by about or create rationally. 
Yeah, I think that's a great insight. Great. And so he builds this up. And sometimes you feel like, I think you're begging the question, but then you're like, well, you did the research. So I guess you're just reinforcing your beliefs and sort of your your, your model that you've, you're proposing here. But like I said, it's very interesting with these stories he takes. And he has sort of a model that came out of his book, The Happiness Hypothesis, that he's reinforcing here as well. And it's this idea of a, a rational rider who is riding a very large elephant, and the elephant sort of embodies your intuitions. The brief summary is that the elephant makes all of your choices and then the rider sort of tilts you a little bit and then reinforces it with rational reasoning. And it's kind of, it's actually, it's not kind of, it is controversial based on the reading I've done about responses to his uh, hypothesis and, and sort of model here. But I think you can also feel that when you make choices, if you look back like, yeah, I didn't really rationalize that. I felt it and went with it. So you're talking about the gut feelings that a lot of us have. And a lot of that exploration, he, his model is called social intuitionism, and it proposes that moral, uh, I'm reading it from the Wikipedia, moral positions are often nonverbal and behavioral. So it's based on a moral dumbfounding where people have these strong moral reactions, and then they try to rationalize it after the fact. And so I think that can make a lot of sense. And I want to reinforce hypothesis in science. This is not like absolutely true, but it's a tool to really think about uh, I think in, in everyday life and when you're even thinking how you're working through, you know, a choice at work or interpersonal relationships is a really interesting way that people could potentially be responding to things. Yeah, it definitely fits. Uh, you know, anybody who knows me at all knows that I'm, uh, I'm a trained hypnotist and trained in neurolinguistic programming and that this, this model absolutely fits into that. Uh, that people are not rational. And I, and I love the elephant metaphor because then I can talk about the rider on top of the elephant holding reins and pretending like they're directing the elephant. Right. And we all want to be, oh, no, I'm, especially as uh, I'm a computer you know, programmer and you're sort of like, oh, no, I'm very rational, very, very rational. I think through everything. And I can't overthink things, but it really comes down to like you make these snap judgments all the time and then you try to rationalize it. Um, and I think a lot of us, you know, will overthink or rethink and reassess. But that's really what the model is saying, is that you make a lot more gut choices than you even think about. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by that model that our brains are so good at instantly rationalizing a decision that was already made to make it seem like we had some sort of deep understanding of why we made that decision. But when you dig under, it's just like, no, the decision was made and then we figured out why that we could verbalize later. Mm -hmm. And this is entirely scientifically proven. Uh, we can do it with MRI studies where you can see in a functional MRI when the de what decision was made, and then you can see the actual rationalization of that decision. Uh, there, was a, there was another experiment done with, uh, with a bit of a sleight of hand. They show the subjects two photos and have them choose between them, and then you do a sleight of hand and switch to photos and say, okay, here's the photo you picked. Why did you pick that one? And get all these wonderful explanations about why they picked the photo they didn't pick. <laughs> right. And in the studies, as he's walking through this, it would be like an off-putting story that you sort of have this gut feeling response to, and then you try to rationalize it. And people are really pretty poor about doing that. You're like, well, why do you think that this is wrong? And they're like, well, it's because, uh, <laughs> and you're like, oh. but see, like most people instantly respond to this in a very similar way, but then the rationalization is a lot harder to do. And it's based on, you know, this is getting into like human psychological development from birth on up. But it's like the general idea is that you're born with like a, a chalkboard that has some buckets ready to be filled up as you learn. And you sort of are built up through the environment and your experiences to then have these sort of intuitions as you get older. That's a very rough summary there. I think it might be helpful for you to go through at least one of the examples of, of one of these stories and, and how that sort of played out a little bit. Um, okay, so here's the kind of challenging story, and it's it's even a little awkward to repeat. <laughs> so a man goes to the supermarket once a week and buys a chicken. But before cooking the chicken, he has sexual intercourse with it, and he cooks it and eats it, right? And so it's awkward for me to say it, but it's, it's very interesting because it's a private, personal thing. You can't really... Like, it's not something that affects you, right? But you probably had a moral reaction to it. Like, excuse me? He's doing what? And then you're like, wait, why? Why is that wrong? Is it wrong? 
No, so, absolutely. I, I had a, I had a uh, very distinctive disgust reaction to that story. And it's great because I can see how difficult it is to rationalize that disgust. Right. And so that's what the, kind of this elephant is responding like, oh, no, <laughs> like that is so wrong. And then you're like, but why? And, and so in the book, there's like on these studies that people are just like reaching for all of these things in, in response to these stories to rationalize why they feel so strongly about why it's wrong. You mentioned earlier that moral psychology is about the development of morals in humans. And I wanted to ask you then, uh, do you mean humans as individuals or humans as a species or both? It's a bit of both, actually. And he dives into that in an interesting way. And it's a little bit later in the book. But it's about, he sort of calls it, actually, I don't think it's him. I think it's a, a psychologist named Durkheim. I may be attributing that wrong, but it's sort of like a homo duplex. So we're not one or the other. There's a little bit of both. You're individual and you have selfish desires, but you're also group based. And a lot of our development as a species can be, you know, sort of analyzed as a group level selection sort of uh, mechanism. Does that kind of help answer the question a little bit? Oh, yeah. The answer is both. That's great. Yep. And so he dives into that a lot, which is fascinating. And in one of his talks, I think it's a um, to the American Psychological Association in 2016, if I'm remembering and attributing this properly, he talks a little bit about that and uses uh, bees and uh, termites, which are all siblings and sexless, like they don't engage in anything like, you know, reproduction. And so they get to build these huge structures, hives, and, and a termite mound is massive based on that. And there's not a lot of other examples besides what humans have been able to build through group level interactions. And he also makes note that almost every time or every time that you see large things like Babylon, he references uh, the Aztec techno which I always mispronounce, as very large societies and structures that were built. And, and it's based on, on these group level dynamics that are bring, have brought people together, like bees and termites, but in a very different sense of the interactions that humans have. But the, the idea, though, was that there were temples always in these sort of societies. And it was like, ooh, that's a tough thing to wrap your head around, that temples and religion always create these situations that have sort of built our society and civilizations throughout the ages. Slight tangent there, but I wanted to sort of throw that out there related to the, the group level idea of how we as a society and civilization have progressed. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I've seen, I've seen a very practical um, and very present example of this uh, in the city of Los Angeles, the, the mayor's office had a, I think, a Department of Resiliency or some resiliency sorry, and they built this entire project of how to keep the city resilient. And I read, I read the executive summary. It's a giant, giant document they they generated. And my realization from that was everything that's in that document can be achieved if all the residents went to church every Sunday. Exactly, which is just a, a fascinating way of bringing people together. Right. And that's what the book ends up diving into is how do you increase that sort of group level cohesion, right? And, and then there's a lot of balance of in-group, out-group sort of ideas as well. And one of the things that was really challenging for me, so in computer uh, science and our general you know, science and tech industry, there's a lot of problem with diversity and we're trying to increase that. And then he goes on to say, and don't emphasize diversity, emphasis your sameness. And I was like, well, okay, what does that mean? Because I want other viewpoints. Uh, I want other people to weigh in with different perspectives from me. But you also want to increase your connection as a single organ uh, organism so that you're cohesive and you sort of evolve together. And in a corporate sense, you know, you might achieve your goals for Q1 together kind of thing. I love that. And, and you're, you personally are focused on helping people and helping people via systems. And, and you're, I think we're all computer programmers here. So how do you create those systems and coherence among people to make that sort of thing work? Multi sort of approaches that you can take. And one of the ones I found interesting, and this dives down into the book a little bit more, but it's about in a corporation sort of sense, there's a transactional leadership where you just pay someone for their selfish sort of work. 
ideas. Like, all right, I'm going to pay you a lot and using carrot and stick will get you to work towards the goals of the corporation. And then there's something called transformational leadership. And that sort of involves creating cohesion, pride, loyalty, increasing social capital or moral capital if you wanted. That's less important in a corporation. But you're trying to do things like group exercises. So you might have, uh, especially in sort of Asian societies, morning group exercise activities. And there's a lot of st studies that say in the military, that's one of the reasons they do so many training exercises, because you start to, by doing the same motions and activities in sync, increasing your hive mentality, which is fascinating to think about. Because a lot of us, especially in a pandemic, are solo. And so you're sort of isolating yourself due to the outside world. And it's a lot harder to do that over video calls. Yeah, that actually ties in with something I was reading on Twitter recently. I don't remember who it was from, but they were saying that a powerful like trauma healing activity is singing together. Because singing is a thing that you can only do when the group is safe, right? You're breathing deeply and freely from the diaphragm. Like it's only something you're going to do when everything is okay. And that being part of a singing group is incredibly healing for traumatic events. Wow, that's really amazing. It probably triggers a parasympathetic system response, right? Yeah, that, yeah. okay, everything's all right, so we're good. And he brings in a lot of collective dancing and religious ceremonies, you know, and so like white Europeans came to Americas and saw Native Americans doing these sorts of things and were like, oh, barbaric. But you're actually creating a sense and a feeling in society of cohesion by doing these things. And it's singing is the same kind of idea. You're triggering those responses and feeling of well-being in large groups. And those groups are generally more successful when compared to other groups who don't do those things. That's a whole other topic about colonization and things. But oh, yeah. uh, And European cultures were doing that too. They gathered together in cathedrals and sang and chanted and sat and stood and, and did all sorts of crazy rituals that developed and maintained group cohesion mm -hmm. but the one I, the thing i want to know right now is how do i do this i'm not going to do uh pt with my with my team i don't, I don't think they'd appreciate that um, so what can we do that's a really great question sort of his notes on how to build a hive or like i had mentioned earlier increase similarity not diversity and so that's more of in-group, out-group ideas and doesn't have to be along racial lines. It can be just along like we have similar goals. Let's find things that we share. So and then, and then exploit synchrony. I probably said that one wrong. Morning group exercises where you move together is hard, but you could potentially do that over video calls if you wanted. And then you start creating, and this is related to corporations, competition between teams, not individuals. Depends on how large of a company you're at. But if you were in a company that you could... You know, you know, there was there's somebody customer focused engineering and then sales engineering. That's where you would start having these kind of competitions that weren't negative in, in nature between your groups, but just sort of to create a group that would move forward with goals in mind. And then personally speaking, even just for studying for this kind of podcast, I found a lot of joy in book clubs uh, and then getting on a video call and talking about them and especially relating it to the outside world and what's happening as we try to rationalize everything that's going on. Uh, that actually felt really nice. And for me, I also helped organize a meetup in Boulder for around Ruby, the language for software development. Uh, and that helps a lot too. So just anything you can, you can organize along those lines can help a lot. And I'm no expert here. I'm sure there's many other ways to do it. And the pandemic that we're living through is makes that a lot more challenging right now, especially going into winter. It's challenging. And I think a lot of us are dealing with isolation, especially right now, and, and how to fix some of those issues. It sort of reminds me of uh, the T-group concept that came out of Stanford. I think it was in the middle of this century. It's not something I'm super familiar with. Um, I think one of our earlier guests last year mentioned being at a company who was founded by people who had been part of that, and they kept that tradition going within the company actually wish I had more detail on it, right, to tell you all about it. But it, it's it's it focused on, like, psychological and emotional sharing so that the you build that cohesion because the, the membership and the group, like, everyone is doing that sharing and, and building up that trust with each other uh, as a way of, again, yet another way of, of forming a cohesive group. I'll uh, find a link to post in the show notes. That would be great. Super interesting as well. There's so many different ways to do this through hobbies or things that you can do at work, taking a break together to stretch or, or something like that. Then that's a whole other you know, subject of study.
getting back to that social intuitionist model and the rider and the elephant, as we're sort of working through how the mind sort of the mind and body create these 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 snap judgments and then rationalize them, you're sort of also looking, especially in the United States, which is strongly divided, I think we would all agree right now along political lines. It's like, how do you bridge that gap? And so working through this is you can't obviously, I mean, obviously, but come in confrontationally when you're trying to to appeal to reason, debate somebody who's different from you uh, in their views here, because that causes the elephant and then likely the rider to lean away from you. And so you immediately you're throwing up a wall there instead of saying, hey, like, let's think about this in a rational sort of empathetic way. And what happens is a lot of people are going to have to take that and you're not immediately going to change their mind you're going to take it home and think about it and then rationalize and maybe make some small course corrections later on so i think it's super important to think about personal interactions and um, professional interactions in that way sort of an empathetic way where you're saying hey i need to think about your point of view and how you're coming to these decisions that you make in your life and professionally and personally and then we'll kind of work on that and, and and part of his idea, Height's idea, is that we're actually selfish and more likely to be self-righteous in our ways of thinking about things because we want to improve our lot until we realize which part of the group we're in. Um, so empathy can be an antidote to that self-righteousness or even the righteousness for my group. And if you don't sort of approach a lot of interactions in that way, you're going to have a lot of trouble reaching across any sort of divide, political, social, etc. Do you have a sense of how to like start someone down the path of recognizing the value of empathy? Like if they if they come to it without that, like how do you start getting someone to to value it so that they can then start empathizing with you and, and others? I think that's what the book kind of gets into a little bit with this um, social intuitionist model and the different ways that especially conservatives and liberals sort of see the world and the different aspects of how they make those moral judgments. So I think that could be one way and not a psychology, you know, I'm not a professional here in psychology or conflict management. I'm not very good at confrontations myself, but I think it's really, if you find yourself in a situation where you're just running into walls, talking with people is take a step back you know, maybe some physical separation and calm down and then rationalize and sort of, all right, let's try again. And that's sort of an antithesis approach, right? Both when you're arguing like, hey, maybe think about this and then you go away from that, rationalize it a little more, and then you can come back to those sorts of things. And that's, I'm sort of skirting giving any real solid recommendations, but I think that you have to recognize what you're bringing to the table and how you may be pushing other people's buttons take a step back and then try again. Yeah. Pushing other people's buttons. You mentioned earlier that, you know, taking the confrontational approach will cause the elephant to lean away from you. This metaphor is now mine. I'm going to own it forever and use it every other day. Because if there's a man and an elephant and you want to change the direction the elephant they're going, you don't address the man, you address the elephant. Right. And just to show how incredibly effective or ineffective is to dress the man. I've known this for five years or 10 years. I've looked at the science behind this and how like we are not rational creatures. We rationalize. And despite knowing all that rationally, it did not change my behavior (laughs) to the point where I was rationally trying to convince people that they were irrational and being shocked, amazed and annoyed that they didn't understand. (laughs) Exactly. And that's, and that's the challenge that we're running into. And some of the points he makes around that is it's easy to see the fault of others, but it's difficult to see our own faults. And I think once you can start looking inward a little bit, like, you know what? I could be wrong about that. You can start seeing that other people think about you in that same way. So that's where the empathy kind of comes in is let's take a step back and think about the ways we're doing things uh, and approaching the world compared to other folks. And and one of the things that really kind of drove this home for me is that most people aren't really going to go search out things that disprove their beliefs uh, or expose your fault. It's very uncomfortable. And so I think that's something to really think about because you're making other people uncomfortable when you sort of expose their faults or cracks in their beliefs or just challenge them. And so you have to be careful about doing that, especially when we're as divided as a nation as we are. 
And I think that's a really interesting thing to keep top of mind when you're going into these situations with people who may not believe the same things that you do. So then that that introduces a, a new question for me now that I'm finally able to maybe getting closer to doing this actual thing to addressing the elephant rather than the man pretending to hold the reins. How does one address the elephant? How do, how do you approach? How do you have empathy with with the irrational person you're dealing with? And how do you how do you work with that? That's a great question. I think we've sort of asked it a little bit. So some of that is empathy, uh, removing emotion from uh, arguments, because then you're sort of getting the elephant to lean away from you, be less confrontational, more kind. There's a site, civilpolitics.org, which I've uh, briefly been on. And some of their recommendations are improve your interpersonal relationships and emphasize cooperative goals versus competitive goals, which is sort of that in-group, out-group, and uh, idea there. So I think that helps a little bit. I don't have perfect answers on this. I'm still kind of exploring what that might look like. But I think that's really the the heart of what I'm taking away from the book and the ideas is, is be less confrontational and more empathetic with other people. Because then you can start getting on the same page. And especially if you're um, emphasizing cooperative goals. So let's say that's climate change on a national scale. How do you say that's actually a cooperative goal that we want to improve from national security perspective as well as earth survival perspective? So it's a, it's a, you know, you could potentially phrase something like that in that way and then say, Oh, I see what we're talking about. We want national security and also not to have fires burning all over the place. Yeah. That's a real thing I can, I can hold on to cooperative goals. You know, where do I, where can I find that? you and I or me and someone else are are looking to achieve the same thing. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Daryl Davis. Uh, I've read a number of stories about him over the years. He uh, befriends members of the KKK uh, and, and through making friends with them, you know, slowly changes their minds over time to get them, you know, out of that world. And, you know, I would imagine, I don't know the details of how he does it, but I'm assuming that there's a tremendous amount of empathy involved in being able to talk, you know, approach these people and, and become friends with them and then get to that point where you feel like they're both on the same side with shared goals about moving forward. And, and slowly those, those beliefs erode in their minds to the point where they uh, eventually decide not to remain members. And I want to call out, just point out how amazing that those stories are. That That is a black man you're speaking of, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's got to be one of the hardest things. And I think it's come up in national politics where folks who are like, why would I work with the other side if your main goal is to disallow me from existing in society? And so somebody like that who can go into the KKK who obviously does not want their existence to be you know, normalized in society and then change their minds. And that's really working on finding similarities, not differences, and then pulling them out of a group that is emphasizing those differences. And so I'm sort of going to try to transition here into sort of part two of the book, which part one was really working through how we rationalize reason and create these intuitions about just everything that you deal with in life. And part two is sort of an explanation about morality based on more than harm and fairness and how the liberal and conservative mind, not just the United States, but overall, looks at morality. And his, his analogy is that morality is like a, a, a taste sensor's taste with different receptors. And so the liberal mind has some things that they consider when making these judgments and the conservative mind has others. And when I was introduced to this book, it was like, well, the liberal mind is limited. They only consider two of these five or six foundations of uh, this theory that he has. And I was sort of like, I feel attacked. I only have two and conservatives have five. How dare they? But when you dive into it, you sort of realize, oh, okay, this is a way to see the other side of the arguments that people make. And especially, it, um, I want to emphasize that some of this is can be very different in what he calls the weird culture, Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic. Uh, and he compares it to other cultures, which are, you know, the Asian cultures. And there's a lot of differences in the way that those two cultures will interact with each other and make these sort of judgments. So if you're more weird, you're going to see the world more as full of separate objects um, than relationships. And you're going to be more 
into independent and autonomous sort of thought and actions compared to um, in an Asian culture. And I don't mean to generalize too much here, but trying to sort of Western versus Eastern culture and philosophies and religious sort of things. Or I think we can see a lot of, you know, how that works if, if you know anything about either culture. And so sort of an example is like, hey, what do you like? And you're like, oh, I like jazz and being happy and going hiking uh, in, a, in an Eastern culture it might be more i'm a father i'm a son i am part of a group like i work at uh, this company and sort of just the way that they represent themselves is different so it's, it's interesting to think about those and it's just sort of a tangent i'm talking about but when he's doing his studies he ended up going to india for a while and it really changed his mind on some of the ways that people interact with the world and, and make these judgments and the political side of it is that people tend to bind themselves into groups around these moral narratives and these foundations that he's talking about and so there's a lot of that that you need to think about if you're going to go into political conversations and, and deal with a fractured sort of country like we have now. But I want to reemphasize that this is sort of a liberal conservative mind outside of the scope of the United States. It's not specifically focused on Republicans versus Democrats. And some of it was like, oh, that's where my attacking was as a, as a more liberal leaning person. I was like, Oh my gosh, the Republicans are seeing the world in the, all these different colors that I'm missing. And that's not exactly what it's like. So the five main foundations are care versus harm. So feeling protection for those who are more vulnerable and then revulsion against harm, fairness and reciprocity, like cheating. So it's sort of a mutually beneficial cooperation you're looking at uh, on the left, the liberal mind that that implies equality. But in the right, it means proportionality. Uh, and so that comes into sort of, in our country, welfare. So the left would like, we want everyone to have an equal sort of footing in, in the country. And then the right is sort of like, hey, I don't like that I do all this work and then other folks get this for free. And that's a very like touchy subject that I don't think we want to dive into. But I just wanted to sort of illustrate that it's sort of like karma in, in a sense, is that they want proportionality, like more work means more reward and liberals are more like, Hey, I think everybody need, we need to spread the wealth a little more. Yeah. It, it reminds me actually of, of some evolution of, of thought process in my part, you know, as, as a person growing up in, in the U S in a fairly liberal context and in, you know, a lot of the myths and morals of, of the United States revolve around individual achievement and independence and freedom and all of these things, right? These are the things we tell ourselves all the time. And we have a lot of stories about, individuals fighting against groups that are holding them back or saying you have to do this for the good of the group. No, no, it's better if you just go your do your own way. Um, you know, those kind of stories. And, and that, that was a message I absorbed very thoroughly. But over time, as my thinking has changed, as I've started to look out at the world as it works and starting to develop empathy for other groups that I'm not a part of, you know, I've started to realize like the value of the group cohesion, right? Of the sort of care for the group and the way the group can take care of the individual and how like belonging to a group isn't a net like, negative, right? It's not just, oh, that means you're trapped by all the roles and, and strictures of a group and it's, you don't want to be like that. Uh, because that leads to so much isolation and loneliness. And like, I think that's a problem we have in the US where everyone thinks they're on their own even though they are, in fact, you know, resting on the work and the backs of a lot of other people. But despite, you know, having this privilege, still feel incredibly alone because they don't have any of those group connections. They don't go to church every week or they don't, you know, belong to a company where they feel any sort of belonging or whatever it is. We're fractured, you know, into individuals rather than lots of cohesive groups. And I can see the downsides of that, too. And so, like you're talking about, there's there's such a split there and finding the right balance, I think is probably impossible, but knowing that there's that split there and realizing which parts of that you want to emphasize in your own life, regardless of the sort of culture you grew up in, the stories you're told, I think is important. Yeah. And that's a great kind of bifurcation of we've reached the end of the liberal sort of taste receptors actually. So it's care, harm, fairness, reciprocity are almost entirely how uh, height is saying that liberals interact with the world. So what you're kind of saying, and I think you just reinforced that, is that you grew up sort of valuing those two quite a bit. And then you sort of like, all right, there's more to the experience, the human experience, right? And um, you sort of 
queued up on that a little bit. Uh, the next one is loyalty slash betrayal. So in-group loyalty versus out-group revulsion. Or, or, you know, and the left liberal mind leans towards universalism. Uh, you know, I am a world, a citizen of the world versus the right towards nationalism. I'm a United States citizen or I'm a Republican. Uh, and then there's authority and subversion, which you touched on as well. Liberals are like, if authority sort of comes into play, they're like, hold on. Like, I don't, why do I need to respect your authority? You start to question that a lot more. Whereas a more conservative mind respects that idea a lot more comparably. And then the sort of last main one is purity, sanctity versus degradation, which has a lot of religious connotations. And then there's sort of a sixth one, which is liberty and oppression, because as they were working through this, and they have a site, yourmorals.org, where you can sort of take quizzes around this, they felt like they were missing one. So this is sort of a conditional sixth foundation, which is liberty and oppression. Uh, so people notice and resent any signs of attempted domination. Uh, and especially related to a libertarian or classical liberal philosophy, that's where this really comes into play. So it sounds like the really big win here is bringing to conscious awareness the intuitive sources of your moral and uh, your moral responses that you make decisions off and have feelings about. Exactly. So, the, and, and then being clear. able to understand other people's in the same way or in contrast. Exactly. Exactly. So if you're like, I'm a liberal and snap too, it's not fair, it's not equal, that's it. You're writing off a large part of the things that other folks are taking into account when they're making the same sort of judgments around the same sort of situations. So then again, going back to the elephant, because I'm never letting that go. Uh, if you're trying to change the direction of an elephant, you need to know what that elephant's doing, whether, you know, if it's somebody who's big on reciprocity. Like, okay, well, this is where we have a, a shared goal in reciprocity versus somebody who's big on the other version of fairness. I've forgotten. Right. And that could be uh, fairness and equality versus proportionality, if you're speaking to just the fairness sort of taste receptor here. So, yeah, that and that's kind of the huge sort of chunk of part two of this book. And one of the major tools to sort of add to your tool chest when you're talking to people who have different views than you is like, okay, you're seeing things in a different way. I need to take that into account when I'm arguing or empathizing or, or working with you to figure out why you think this way versus why I think this way. And he has some interesting line charts that sort of show this, like a, a left-leaning liberal, a classical liberal slash libertarian, and, um, and that's a United States versus Europe sort of distinction, and then a, a conservative. And it's just sort of like very dark lines for liberals on those two, and then libertarian, classical liberal, almost entirely liberty-based, and then the social conservative is almost an equal distribution across all six of them. So they take it all into account, and like I said, in different ways, especially around equality, harm, harm, fairness sort of situations. But it really sort of lays out what he's found in his research about how how the different alignments of these groups take things into account when they're making these judgments. One final point, too, in the book, he works through a lot of how those different moral foundations play into our evolution as a species. The sanctity and degradation kind of foundation, if you think about that, it's like the omnivore's dilemma. How do I know that this is safe to eat? It's got to be clean. And so you, you sort of can see how that has helped us evolve to where we are now, because that was something that was very important when you didn't know if something was going to be okay for your survival. Uh, and the loyalty, betrayal, and authority subversion, he talks a lot about in-group and you know a strong man in a tribal sense trying to take over and change and bully the direction of a group and how, as tools were developed, that became a sort of uh, zero-sum game. So if someone tried to bully or um, subvert the group in an authoritarian kind of way, they would use the tools to take him out or her out, but usually him because we know. That's a little more testosterone based, but that's a side note. So I thought that was really fascinating and I just highly recommend reading the book based on taking into account. I think it's just fascinating how humans develop in these ways. Okay, so now we'll get kind of into the part three of things. And that's sort of the idea that morality binds and blinds. And he really gets into in-group, out-group explorations here. And that's where this homo duplex, and it was Durkheim, who I'm probably mispronouncing his name, sort of came into play here. So that homo sapiens are really homo duplex. And so it's a 90% chimp, 10% bee idea. So the mind, our minds kind of contain a lot of these mental mechanisms 
that are adept at promoting our own interests in competition with our peers, but then you can also sort of cohesively create groups that do the same thing in a group level idea. And I think that the tribal hunter gatherer and then agrarian sort of steps that we've taken, you can sort of see that as you develop societies and civilizations that are more than just these very small groups of people and these steps that we've taken along that path in groups. And he sort of does this really interesting, I'm out on a canoe rowing by myself and then I get blown by two people in a canoe and then a whole rowing crew. And as you can see the like, as you build up a more cohesive group, you can speed up your adaptation and success because you're working together towards shared goal. Yeah, I love that. Ninety uh, percent chimp, ten percent bees. It definitely connects with the story about the this. This I heard this from a speech from Adam Lyons, so I'll give him a name check there. And he told he he described the origin of the ancestors to humans and the separation from from other primates being that they they were driven out of the trees and had to forage in the fields and the thing about being in a field is that there's nowhere to go for safety uh, you can't you can't climb up a tree and, and and be safe from your predators and so they they needed to develop an ability to work together to where somebody sees oh no there's a lion over there I'm not just gonna run away I'm gonna say something and we're gonna all run away together and th this is what creates a species that is now driven towards communication and cooperation and being a social species much more than than our uh than the other primates exactly he sort of ties this into like morality is an adaptation for natural selection at the individual and group level which ties into this high versus individual sort of mentality and so this whole book just kind of builds on these ideas and is really i think a fascinating you know dive into that and we sort of talked about that hive switch already where we jumped forward and talked about collective dancing religious ceremonies ways to sort of key into these moral foundations and increase your cohesion as a group. And that can be increases in group love so that you, you just make these cohesive groups. I'm sort of restating this here. So you sort of make these collective groups that succeed better when they are more cohesive compared to a more individual focused group, right? So if you're going to use your analogy story uh, of coming out of the trees into the fields, if folks are individually focused on collecting grain or food sources and then running back without working as a group they're going to start being picked off by the predators so as as you increase this sort of group cohesion through whichever way you want to you know, move forward with that you start to become more successful compared to groups who are more individually focused and now you have an evolutionary pressure to develop this group cohesion just like right. you have evolutionary pressure towards these ethics which are or morality, which are not at all distinct from that, because that that's sort of what creates these groups. Exactly. And he cues into religion a lot, which um, as a liberal sort of mindset, it, I think puts off a lot of people because you sort of have a lot of negative connotation with religion. But I think it's very interesting to explore how that helped in our civilization. And I think you mentioned in Los Angeles, right, where the mayor's office is like, everyone went to church. This would be a, no longer be a problem kind of thing because you'd have that in-group cohesion based on those shared similarities. And so it, he talks a lot about the development of religion to bring groups together from you know, hunter-gatherer perspective and then on. And it changes and appeals to different parts. So like hunter-gatherers punish bad behavior and they're all, the gods are capricious and malevolent. And then in groups, as you take up agriculture and go larger, they become far more moralistic. And I think that's where these foundations sort of developed to bring the groups together. Um, those gods are concerned with actions that foment conflict and division within the group, like murder, adultery, false witness, breaking of oaths, sorts of things. And that sacredness, and this goes back to the talk I referenced earlier, where he said, when you find these large developments of civilization like Babylon or Technotichon, it's almost always where you find temples. The sacredness binds people together. And then it sort of blinds them to the arbitrariness of the practice. And one of the sort of to bring liberals back into the fold, I think one of the ways they sort of sacralize things is, say, around the organic food movement. Things you put into your body need to be pure or the experience of going into nature, which has sort of brought the circle around for me towards the idea of you know creating an in-group binding of, oh, I eat organic or, oh, we go out hiking together to sort of sacralize nature in that respect. I hope I'm tying that together well. 
but it's that that sanctity idea and the different ways that we're trying you know you do that without even really thinking about it like it's not a religious experience to put organic food in your body if that's what you believe or non-gmo but that's really a, the body is a temple idea yeah that that sanctity can play with most most group norms i want to call out the the value of religion i was greatly influenced by uh, elaine de bottom's book religion for atheists uh, which is not a great book. Um, sorry, Elaine. Uh, and I'm also probably mispronouncing your name, so double sorry. But he does he does go very deep into what these sort of things that that religion get us and how we can get those things, even if we no longer hold those beliefs about deities and gods. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like the sort of liberal semi-post-religious context is in search of like in group binding things that aren't religion because religion like religious in group binding has been so problematic throughout history. Would you think that was correct? Exactly. And I think that's sort of a, a full other thing we could dive into some other time, but it's like you're sort of casting about at a deep intuitive level for these sorts of things that increase your binding to other people in the group in a group. Um, so you may not be a religion, but you're still kind of working towards that idea because you Everyone would like to belong to a group that has similar outlooks on life, right? It's that in-group sort of motivation that I think we have sort of innately. And also, if you look at it from a, a systems of systems uh, perspective, groups that don't have in-group binding no longer exist. If you just, you know, from a Darwinistic uh, point of view, they just they disappear. Exactly. And he makes reference to communes and the ones that were more religious based compared to um, just a liberal commune with, with kind of individual focuses, uh, almost across the board succeed better when you're bound around a religious sacral idea, which is like, oh, wow. And, and when you have a more individual focused group like that, they tend to question everything instead of coming together. And it's sort of an interesting parallel to democracy, like a perfect democracy, uh, potentially, where you don't respect authority that much, and then you can sort of splinter apart. And I probably slaughtered the metaphor and reference there, but the idea of the commune being more successful when it was organized around a sacred or religious kind of idea succeeding is like, oh, that's super fascinating. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned democracy because something I've learned recently, um, I thought that in the U.S., the concept of democracy was sacred. And just coming from that perspective, like this is more democratic. This is a violation of democratic norms. These are bad things. Therefore, that because of that, I discovered that not everybody takes those as sacred and universal and not even in the U.S. and, I, and not even in people involved in politics in the U.S., and so that is not as persuasive as a point of view as, as I thought. Yeah, I think other values are superseding those. Like other group cohesions are more important to people than those group cohesions. Right. And so that sort of the sort of speaks to the idea of why we're getting becoming so divided in this country based on what we think is important. And so a conservative mind may look at this like, well, there's not enough of what I prefer in an authority figure happening in a democratic process or a socialism based process where socialism is, you know, the boogeyman. Uh, and so they're going to lean a little more towards an authoritarian organization of government comparably. Whereas a liberal mind is like, yeah, everybody, socialism, equality, and that's a far left leaning view, but they're going to be more, more open to the idea of equality. Everyone's on the same footing as an organization, which democracy in its purest sense is or should be. And so some of what we're building up towards here is, all right, we're very divided, and how do we fix that? And he sort of comes around to the idea, uh, especially around Eastern philosophy with uh, yin and yang, or yin and yang, depending on how you've heard it pronounced, where you need a party of order and stability and a party of progress and reform to have a healthy political life. And it's, it's sort of interesting because you're like, well, I want my group to succeed, so we only need liberals. Or, oh, oh conservatives, like I want the social conservative order of society. Uh, we only need that viewpoint. And what I think is really eye-opening about that is you need both in a, in a antithesis and thesis sort of fight back and forth where you have both ideas come into play. And in our society, 
in, in the talk I've already referenced about the, uh, the to the APA, he has some uh, real interesting slides that have created uh, about the reasons for our split. And some of that is um, goes back to the Civil Rights Act. Uh, Lyndon Johnson has a famous quote where we just handed the South to Republicans for the foreseeable future. But then there's also sort of some, so there's a liberal conservative voter bifurcation that's happening. And then there's also changes in Congress. So in the mid-90s, and I think this is Newt Gingrich, he instituted, so it used to be that when you were elected to Congress, you moved your entire family to Washington, D.C. You had social mixers with both sides of the aisle. You started to become friends. So you're seeing how that overrides your party loyalty. And you're like, no, I actually know this Democrat on a social basis. He's a good person. Let's talk about things. So in the mid-90s, they're like, all right, you know, new Republicans don't move here. Stay home. And so what happens is they start to fly in, make these choices for all of these laws and, and things, and then fly home. And so you stay in your in-group, which is likely to be conservatives at home, instead of mixing with both sides. And that's just mm. created the – and I would watch this video. Like if you want to take anything away from this, watch the APA 2016 keynote that he, ta- uh, he gives. It's fascinating. Because he starts having all these charts showing just like, all right, we're, you know, a little bit down and a little bit more separated, a little more separated. And then like after the 90s, it's like these staggering drop offs of how close we're sort of working together. And that's sort of where he's getting into like, all right, we need to take into effect how these different sides take things into effect when they're making these decisions and then how, and figure out how to bring back that cohesion on both sides towards a more civil politics where we work together instead of only advancing our group uh, ideas versus your group ideas, right? And it's, as you can see from the election, there are millions of people who believe one or the other thing, and it's very divisive right now. <clears throat> and he brings up the Persian prophet uh, Mani, Mani Manukiism as a sort of battle of good versus evil, and that's all there is. It's a, it's a polarized view of the world. And I think we've gotten to sort of that state where it's my group versus your group, and that's it. There's nothing in between. The shades of gray have been lost. Yeah, it's it's always been the sort of concept in the back of my head that 100% liberal and 100% conservative are like sort of doomed paths because either change is going to happen too fast and you're going to start flying, you know, flying apart because you're spinning too fast, or you're going to lock things down and think everything's going to be completely rigid and never change. And that's also going to break things. And that sort of balance between the two allows you to move forward, but at a pace that isn't going to like radically destroy th- the structure of, of, of the system. Exactly. It's like a large boat. It just takes time to move. And so you have to do these small course corrections both ways. And most Americans are great people right in the, like right in the middle. They just want like, a prosperous life, the American dream and whatnot. They don't want this like, oh, oh massive socialism or, oh, Sharia law you know, to sort of over overgeneralize the ideas here. But um, I think that's really important to keep in mind and the balance that we need both sides to weigh in on and work together. Um, it's just really fascinating. And, and I think the um, our politicians no longer live in the same community and go back to their own home state and town. Is a, is a really big takeaway for me is that we need them to be encouraging more positive social connections so that they can work together to achieve the goals that most people want, which is somewhere in the center. Yeah, I wasn't actually aware of, the, of that change, and that that really does strike me as a as an important factor in in things. Yeah, and there's a total of ten different things he sort of cites in that talk that are really interesting that have been ramping up since the mid '60s, '70s, and on, especially in the last 20 or 30 years. So like I said, highly recommend that talk. He's a fantastic speaker. And um, he also sort of pokes fun at the profession of psychology and uh, academia specifically, which sort of brings back a little bit of the liberal bent that's happening in in academia. And he ties into coming out of the closet as a, uh, a gay person, maybe in the 90s, to being a conservative in academia now where you don't feel like you could even speak up. It's, it seems weird to think about, but they've been so shunted and made fun of in higher education 
that you don't think you can exist in that situation. And I think you can see that where a lot of conservatives are like, oh, that's your education talking or, oh, you're just, you're educated. And that was really interesting to me because I like learning and being educated about things and knowing things. But if what you're seeing is a system that doesn't want you there because of how you align on the political spectrum, you're not going to want to participate. And then you're going to shun that idea, which is super interesting to me. So he takes them to task like, hey, we need to be better, especially in the humanities and psychology per se, about welcoming people with different viewpoints, not making fun of them. And it's hard because that's your in-group and you sort of use that as a let's make fun of the other side situation. But you have to stop doing that because you're preventing those cohesive connections from being made. Right. And you're and you're setting up the, the conservatives to be anti-intellectual, anti-education, you know, anti so many things. Yeah. And it does not have to be around education per se. I mean, there's, like I said, a lot of folks in the middle who believe in science and uh, education or, or whatnot. But that's just one sort of point I took from it was if we're creating these systems that are that divisive and make fun of anything that's outgrouped, Instead of promoting that cohesion, how do you move forward? One of the points he talks about is that we think the other side is, this is a direct quote, is blind to truth, reason, science, and common sense. Like, you're dumb. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, that's, you can't move forward if that's how we're going to think about things, right? So everyone sort of goes blind a little bit emotionally and rationally when they're talking about things that are sacred to them or the, you know, the foundations they believe, you know, the world is organized into. Right. So I want to connect those last two things, you know, because for me, education is is another one of those of obviously this is good. How can that possibly be bad? Uh, and so to to hear anti intellectualism, anti anti education systems uh, messages come out, I get real like, well, that's completely wrong. So so let's uh, let's apply this methodology to that. It's like what values are more important what am i not seeing there is it really just about in group out group is there something else i think the idea of anti-intellectualism is interesting to explore around education and one of the studies that he actually cites here is that as you sort of improve the things you know about and improve like if you have a higher iq which colleges sort of um, sort for you become better at arguing four points on your side, not points on both sides. So they find that as the smarter and more educated you are, you just become better at arguing your own side. So you become sort of a, a lawyer who's just quite good at arguing for the things you think are right, which I think is an interesting counterpoint. I don't want to promote anti-intellectualism by any means. I think that you should be educated about the world in lots of different ways. But it doesn't have to be that academia is the way you go. And I, I think college is amazing. It, like a lot of social development happens and critical thinking happens through that experience. But what I'm sort of getting at is that if academia is going to have this huge liberal bent, you're going to exclude people and viewpoints that you need to have that balance in the system. And so it would become less an anti-intellectual thing and more of, hey, we think about things in a different way. Let's work together to learn, learn together. I think. Well, if you're not going to take the anti-intellectual stance, then I will. <laughs> How about that? Because I, I love what you said about uh, higher IQ, better education. They don't make you <laughs> smarter. Smarter is not the word I'm looking for because that's exactly what, what higher IQ makes you. Um, they don't make you better at like being able to see the world for how it is. They make you better at being able to rationalize what you see. And so perhaps one of the things we need uh, as a culture, and, and this is because this is a very uh, our 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 American culture is very intellectual and, and and rational, like focused. So maybe what we need is is the ability to see that intellectualism and rationality and reason are not our primary drivers, nor should they be, and that there are other things that are important that we probably should be focusing more on. And I ended that sentence with the with the phenomes moron, which. <laughs> <laughs> right i'm no expert on how to exactly move forward like i said this is a tool to take into account when you're trying to explore these ideas and your ways that you navigate the world and you know other viewpoints i just find it really fascinating and i think it's really challenging even as a so i align as a liberal speaking about these things and not 
denigrating a conservative viewpoint because that's not the point. And so you really have to take a step back and be like, okay, they have valid viewpoints in the way they've worked through the world. Let's talk through that, you know, internally and between kind of viewpoints so that you get a better understanding of the nuance of the world. So yeah, that was kind of my huge takeaway there is be a little more, like we talked to her at the beginning, be a little more empathetic to other people's views and ideas in the world. Yeah, I think one of the keys there with the empathy is like understanding why they value the things, like what it is, what's behind it, like understanding it's about purity versus desecration or you know, loyalty versus uh, or your authority. But like, if you if you sort of know where that's coming from, it's much easier to relate to like how they get to conclusion X based on that. And then you can sort of walk up the tree a little bit and maybe find where it branches away from your thinking about it and address it there. And then come to I think like understanding on both sides. And to do that requires like because it's very easy to see how. It's easier to see how other people make flawed decisions than it is to see how we make, mm-hmm. we do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so understanding how we are, we are also riding an elephant. Uh, and our elephant is, you know, sort of spooked and focused on different things than other people's elephants. And we're not, we're not holding the reins. And so to understand that even if we are holding the reins, we're not directing the elephant. And so to not to see them as holding the reins incorrectly or pulling the reins incorrectly, but just understand they have a different elephant. Exactly. It's really a perfect summation of the idea that's going on there with these, the moral foundations sort of theory that he's, he's working with. So I think we've come to the time where we have to start wrapping things up. And so we'll uh, go to our reflections, which are the thoughts that are going to stick with us from this conversation, the things that we're going to be, you know, pondering for a little while after this talk. Uh, so, uh, Damien, uh, what were yours? I've mentioned it probably four times already since since Rylan brought it up. That darn elephant! I'm holding on to that elephant. The thing I want to reflect on that is like these are. This was not a, a new idea to me, but being able to attach it to that visual image made it so much more powerful, both to explain and to apply to my life. And so just, uh, I'm, I'm going to be reflecting on that elephant a lot and hoping that I can finally change my behavior with that image where I couldn't do it with the, with the rational man on top pulling the reins. I think that's my main reflection as well is be less sure that people are thinking about things in a rational way and more in an emotional or intuitive way. And one of the quotes that he brings up in his talk, in one of the talks, the APA talk, I believe, is from a 700 BCE philosopher, uh, Eastern philosopher, and I'm going to slaughter the name. So it's Sensan, S-E-N-T-T-S-A-N. If you want the truth to stand clear before you, never before or against, the struggle between for and against is the mind's worst disease. And that's that polarization sort of situation. So that's really my reflection and approach that I would sort of say, hey, take this into account. You should find that middle ground that works out for you. And there's another quip that's um, there's my side of the story, your side of the story, and then the truth somewhere in between. And those are the things that I'm taking away from this. Yeah, I think this is for me, it's, it's reinforced, you know, some of my like earlier thoughts about the value of conservative viewpoints versus liberal viewpoints and how, you know, like how they function in society at large. Uh, and, and how, like we said, if we can get the culture to, to work together, much like you were saying, if, if we can get the, the people in Congress to spend more time together and know each other and like feel like they could work together on things rather than just resolute obstructionism. You know, I think we would at least make some sorts of progress versus this sort of jerking back and forth between one mode and the other. And uh, definitely I'm going to keep thinking about that, like the motivations and the values behind, you know, what someone, a belief that someone is espousing as a way of trying to understand, like, how they got to what they're saying. Uh, I think it's going to be pretty important. Oh, also, uh, Damien, you may have read this already. There's a book called Switch by Chip Heath and Dan Heath that uses the rider and elephant metaphor pretty extensively as far as how do you get groups and individuals to change direction and things like that. I'll post a link uh, for you. Nice. Yep. And I'm, and, and height really is, is kind of carrying this flag. It's really interesting into sort of 
trying to make this discussion a little more broad. So that's kind of my goal is just to spread the idea at least, and hopefully it you know promulgates out in in some ways through this podcast and just watching these videos and thinking about these things. Um, you take away that concept and then you think on it, and then it sort of broadens how you view the world and and make you become a little more accepting. I guess is my hope. So that's a sort of additional reflection, I guess. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show, Brylin. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you both. Thank you for joining us. This was a blast. <laughs>